Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Lusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. A friend is from Anonymous, and he says, a friend and I had a major fallout, and even though I see that it's for the best, I'm finding it hard to forget about it. I have forgiven him and myself, but it is hard. Uh, it seems there is no question to this, um, but I'm guessing you are asking... Okay, okay, I think it continues. Suggest uh, practical ways for me to forget and stop beating myself up about it. Yeah. Okay. So just to be clear, this um, person had a fallout with a friend of theirs. Yeah. Right. And now they messed up. They only patch things up, and they feel bad that they messed it up. Um. No. They they say um they had a fallout, and they yeah. think it is for the best, but they are finding it hard to forget about it and stop putting oh. their stuff about it. Also, oh, the fallout was for the best, meaning it's good that they are not friends anymore. Yes, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so it's anonymous, so I'll just try to explain as best as I can. When you have two friends who love each other very much and they decide, uh, or maybe things happen in their life, they have some hitch, some friction, they just argue about something, right? I think sometimes conflict can reveal a lot for us. It's, it can be a very good teacher, so during the conflict, many times you see people at their worst, you see people at their most vulnerable, you see people at their most um, rash as well. And so it's in those moments that you need to first reassess the situation at hand. What we are arguing about, is it truly irreconcilable? Is it truly um, something that cannot be fixed? Um, and just examine it i think it's very important to exhaust every opportunity to resolve that situation why the lord tells us um and through even the, the apostles that we should follow peace with all men right follow peace with all men um blessed are the peacemakers we are people who are peaceful we are the sons of god and so we are peacemakers and so in every attempt of ours we must always look for peace and peace doesn't mean you keep quiet, you don't air your views, you keep quiet because you want to just be peaceful about it. It might require you doing that, but there's a way to resolve conflicts where you address the actual issues and then you actually resolve peacefully. Because when you decide to say, look, I don't want to be friends with someone again because of a fallout, especially if you're believers, it has dire consequences. You're not just talking to some average person somewhere you don't like because you had some argument you're also talking to a fellow believer that you're bonded by spirit this is an eternal brother or an eternal sister you will be with them in heaven in glory forever and ever so the weight of this is far more important than any little squabble that you have unless you have deemed that look being with this person being a friend to them or you know being a friend uh, to them and then being a friend to you is is not helpful for you in your mental health it's not helpful for you um, spiritually or otherwise, then I think you can amicably decide 
look, no bad blood, no bitterness, no work of the flesh. You just need to stay away from each other for a while because this is not helpful for both of us. If you decide to reconvene later in the future when you, you are both more mature, you're able to handle it perfect. But if not, it's okay. But the, the last thing you want is bitterness, strife, malice, and every work of the flesh because those are easy gateways for the enemy to prowl and destroy lives. All right, so that's, that's a summary to, that, to, to answering that question. Um, at all costs, you know, I think it's also Paul that says it, um, if possible, make peace with everyone at all costs. In Romans, I think Romans chapter 12. And so the point is make peace um, as much as you can. But if you feel, look, that, that friendship you've, you've discovered through that conflict, that that friendship is not helpful anymore, um, ensure that your heart is in the right place. If you need a third party to intervene, please get a trusted third party that both of you trust to try and mend things. If that still doesn't happen, make sure that when you part ways, you are parting amicably, full of love in your heart for that person, but just protecting your own personal and mental space. <clears throat> I hope, really hope this helps answer that person's question. Um, I think it should, but I want to add um, a bit okay. of... So let, let's say they... They don't, so they know the relationship should have, should end, but yeah. they don't like the way it ended. How do they stop um, feeling guilty about how okay. it ended? Like, I feel like they have, this person might be focusing on how it ended. How it ended, okay. Yes, not yeah, in okay. the, the relationship ending. So, how do they not beat up themselves or not be bad about, yes. Yeah. So many times when you feel guilty about how something happened or how it ended, many times it's a good sign. It's a good sign that your con conscience is not seared. It's a good sign that you feel something was wrong and needs to be done about it. So if the relationship did not end amicably, it was sour, you feel guilty okay. about it. Sorry to cut you off. So it seems um, um, the person that asked the question is on the call. Uh, I think it would be better for her to clarify um, better. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So you could. Yes, you could PK. Good evening, PK. Hi, good um, evening. Hi, PK. It's Bethel. So, um, just hi, hi. a bit of clarity for the question I was asking. So, okay. me and this person have been friends. The person is a guy, so we've been friends for over a year now, and so okay. we had a fallout. This okay. fallout, I know that there were certain things that I could have done better. And also from okay. his end, I know obviously there's some things he did that hurt me, but I also know obviously it wasn't just him. There were some things that could have yeah. been better, like communication. Okay. Now, in trying to yeah. end things a few weeks after that, I'm reaching out, okay, let's settle this thing. And it seemed like he had forgiven in quotes, but then it was not like the friendship was not going to go back to how it was again. But then I tried again because mm. I could tell it wasn't like it wasn't complete completely peaceful so i tried okay. again and i'm trying to even call because i feel like over text because of where um yeah. so many of friendships have to be online for now and so i yeah. felt like talking to him would have been better over the phone but mm -hmm. he wasn't he wasn't budging it was a case where he was not really getting upset like oh no he doesn't want to talk to me like it was so clear that the thing was still an issue and i'm like okay yeah. can we call and I'm trying to see, okay, when is a good time to talk? And he's like, oh, no, he doesn't want to talk to me. I shouldn't send a voice note. He doesn't want to talk. And it was obviously getting heated over text. And he was okay. just being very, he was just speaking to me with a lot of disregard. 
And okay. it made me question a lot of things because I'm like, okay, if this is truly a friend that cares about me, even if a friendship is going mm. to end, is this how you should be talking to me? Like, I wouldn't even talk to somebody that is not my friend at all, like this a stranger yeah. even insults me. So I, I felt really hurt, but then... Yeah. So now it's a thing of, okay, how do I stop beating myself up? Because I feel like I was really yeah. vulnerable. Um, okay. Bringing myself to say, okay, these are the things I did wrong and I'm willing to work on this. I'm just being vulnerable enough. But then he's yeah. not really responding in that way. So I felt very embarrassed. And it was almost like I didn't yeah. even know who he was again. So now my question was just all about, okay, how can I forget the forgiveness part? Um, yeah. So praying has really helped me and also okay. just analyzing everything. But then beyond praying that's forgetting thing like forgive and forget but i'm always remembering yeah. it's been yeah. like it's been over three weeks since this thing happened and it's still on my mind like sometimes i think about it sometimes i don't but then i just mm. want to stop feeling like oh i embarrassed myself or oh, i shouldn't have yeah. there's a lot of oh i should have just been on my own or it's it's just yeah. as like, I, should, I should be a peacemaker <laughs> i want to make peace now <laughs> you insulted me so yeah. yeah that's where it's coming from okay now okay now i have better context to this and thank you for sharing thank you for being bold from the anonymous shadow into the limelight um thank you for sharing um this these things are very 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 dicey and sensitive just like you've mentioned um and there is always when it comes to reconciliation it's always a partnership it's never a one street road it's a it's a two-way street right it's it's that one person meets the other person halfway and they decide to resolve and so if you've tried everything on your side truly you have exhausted every option um and maybe i'll throw this option in usually uh, and scripturally when two people have an issue um if they're not able to settle this within themselves they're to call a trusted person third party to help resolve it do you understand? There's a procedure for reconciliation in the body. And so someone who both parties respect, who both of you respect, can intervene, like hear both sides, understand where the issues are really coming from, and task both parties to truly forgive, like Christ forgave. If that does not work, right, now you are in a place where you're left to be, should I say, the mature person in love. And what that means is that just like the Lord Jesus was ridiculed and spat in him in the face and he was going to be crucified. And then he says, forgive those. I forgive you guys. Like, um, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Right. He was, he was mocked. He was ridiculed for his love. And sometimes our love is also spat upon, even though we are trying to love as, as much as possible. And the person is just not um, receiving or reciprocating that love. Your hands are tied in a case like that. When you've really exhausted all options and this person still treats you that way, at the end of the day, many times, it's time really does it a big number on these things, thankfully. As the person truly grows, and I'm, I'm guessing the person is a believer, as the Lord begins to consecrate this person, if they are open to it, um, eventually they'll come around. It might take some time, but eventually if they truly desire consecration and sanctification, it will come around. But till then, if you truly have exhausted all your options, your hands are really tied and you just hand it over to the Lord. You pray for this person to also help your heart so that by the person's response, you don't also 
start to respond as the person is responding. You need to make sure that your response is hinged upon the Christ and his love, his unconditional love. Right? That's, that's as far as I can say, but if there's more context to it, right now what you should do is as much as you are praying, as much as you're trying to keep your heart um, guarded, involve a trusted third party to resolve this issue. Let both sides have an opportunity where it's in a safe space to air their views, their grievances, and work towards it, right? And then eventually, if that still doesn't work, then you leave it to God. That's the truth. Um, we human beings were very strange and complicated, but God is faithful, and he knows how to reconcile people and work on our hearts. Yeah. Thank you, PK. All right. Most welcome. All right. Thank you, PK, so much um, for that answer. Uh, does anyone, I don't see any hands raised, so I will take a second slide of question. Um, uh, this one is from Dolapo, and it says, okay. funny, que funny question, but I've Loki always thought about it. Is it possible to get possessed from reading a certain kind of book or listening to a certain kind of music? Ah, interesting question. Is it possible to get possessed by reading a certain kind of book or listening to some kind of music? Ah, <laughs> very good question. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, when you talk about the gateways through which the devil can influence possess, um, oppress a person, it's endless. It's absolutely endless. Um, many times it's, it could be a reason of carelessness. It could be by someone's ex exposing you to demonic influences. For example, I think easily many people would agree that if you have someone expose you um, to um, things of the other side, demonic things, witchcraft, sorcery, and things like that, easily that that um, has an inroad to you, especially if you're not a believer, you are not also discipled and grown. Um, you're very susceptible to those things. However, as a believer, um, when it comes to being possessed by the devil, um, I don't see place any place in the scripture that indicates that the temple of the Lord can share space with the devil as well. Now, externally so, I believe that that can be the case. There can be demonic oppression, like what Paul experienced when there was a thorn in his flesh sent by a messenger of Satan. While we see in the verses to follow in 2 Corinthians 12 that that was his persecution and hardship, which restricted him from traveling to the places where he was meant to strengthen their faith, the churches that he had planted, that was a demonic attack. Clearly, he said it was a messenger of Satan that, that was a thorn in his flesh. And so you as a believer, while you are saved, sanctified, blood-washed, can be oppressed by the enemy, can be attacked, and it's expected. You should expect the attacks of the enemy. He's a roaring lion looking for who to devour. And so at the end of the day, um, any thing, um, any material, any media, any sort of influence can be an inroad for oppression. So I'll give you an example of oppression. A lot of oppression aside where it becomes physical, physical ailments or things like that, it's here. Um, if you are wrestling with an ideology, if there's something you need to be true about the scriptures and now you're battling that thoughts excessively, the, that in many ways is a demonic oppression. 
it's it's what Second Corinthians ten talks about how we bring and subject every lofty high and lofty thought, every imagination in obedience to Christ. All right, and so it's it's bringing these ideologies from the other side to subjection to divine ideologies. That's the scriptures and the truth of the gospel. So at the end of the day, it's easy if you're listening to music that is challenging those things. It's it's increasing lust in your heart. It's increasing greed, covetousness. You're reading books that do the same thing. It can be a direct attack to your faith and your doctrinal stance. And so truly you can be oppressed. The, the conversation about um, possession, however, um, it's if the person in the case of an unbeliever who is not grounded in the faith, is not discipled, um, comes in contact with those things, absolutely. The, the description the Lord gave is that it's a, it's a house that is empty. And so if when a demon finds a place that is empty, he will stay. And I mean, in fact, might want to invite some of his brothers and sisters to join the party. Um, and so um, that is very, very possible. I'll just summarize it like that. Very possible. So it's important. It matters what we read. It matters what we watch. It matters what we hear. Yeah. In summary, everyone, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Exactly. With all diligence. Uh-oh. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay. So I have seen a top question here. And then someone also sent in a similar sort question. So Anonymous says, since baptism of the Spirit is necessary to be saved, does mm-hmm. that mean that water baptism isn't important? Um, but at the same time, I see a question that came in from Grace just now, and I think it's sort of similar. So I'm just going to lump them up. Merge them. Okay. Um, so Grace is saying, um, I don't exactly get the baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit part of the Great Commission. Please, can you explain it? Especially in view of except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I understand that we are saved by grace alone, but baptism, what is this, please? (laughs) Okay, uh, where do I even start from? I know we have a teaching in our podcast about, I'm not sure of the exact title, but it has to do with, do I need to be baptized? to be saved. I think it was under our Asking for a Friend series um, two years ago or three, maybe. Um, but I'll summarize. At what point does, um, or, or I mean, what is water baptism? What is spirit baptism? At what point does someone become baptized in the spirit? And then I think the other question asked is, what does it mean to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as regards to the Great Commission? Very simple. Um, so when you talk about baptism, baptism in many ways can mean different things. Um, but by definition, baptismal simply means to immerse, to bring something or include something into an entity where it once didn't belong to that entity. Uh, it, you can use words like immersion or inclusion. Um, so even when you talk about the baptism of Moses, for example, um, the baptism of Moses was an immersion into the law. It was an, an immersion into the old covenant. It's it's an inclusion into something. Um, so baptism in many ways can be in terms of doctrine. It can be in terms of an institution, it, like, for example, the family of God. 
So when you do what, when you talk about water baptism, John the Baptist from the very get-go told us what it was, but many people don't get it. He said, look, I'm doing something right now. I'm a prophet. The Old Testament prophets did something. They foretold of the coming of the Messiah without having even seen the Messiah. They foretold, they prepared the people's heart. There'll be one who will be beaten and stricken. Uh, you know, he'll, be, he'll bear the iniquities of all upon himself. He'll be called marvelous, counselor, the mighty king, mighty God. All these descriptions were preparations. The ceremonial laws, same thing. And you see this guy, John the Baptist, the very first of his kind as a prophet to witness the Christ. But before then, he was preparing them for what he was going to do, a salvific work. His own baptism was a baptism unto repentance, which means he was preparing their mind for what the person who was going to come was going to do. He said, I baptize with water now, but there is someone who is greater than I who will baptize with spirit and fire, right? Whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's telling you, he says he's, he is greater than I. What I'm doing now is not the real thing. It's a preparation. There is someone who is going to bring the real thing. He has always been the real thing. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of all these ordinances. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophet, prophetic um, preparations. He is the fulfillment. When he saw him, behold the Lamb of God that was, uh, that, that, uh, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Behold, this is him. Finally, that was, that was when he, he literally said, look, my ministry is done. I've prepared you for his coming. He's here now. And he's going to do the real deal. So moving on, if you're going to talk about John 3, where, where he um, says, unless you are born of, of water and of spirit, you won't see the kingdom of God. Um, I've, I've explained this in the teaching. I'll just summarize it here. When you say water and spirit, um, in the Greek, it, people say water. I've heard all sorts of translations. People say water is the word of God. Unless... You are cleansed by the word of God. You've renewed your mind well enough and you have the Holy Spirit to enter God's kingdom. Um, they are, if, if contextually, they are wrong, but they are not far from the truth. When you say um, water, meaning water baptism, unless you are baptized by water, um, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have a lot of questions to ask, um, especially with the guy who was at the side of Jesus on the cross. And he didn't have to do that. He didn't say, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And just, oh, this guy, you're a late coma. Ah, ah, okay, you know what? You know what? I really want you to be in heaven. So let me just do something for you. You now use his eye, remove one nail in the hand, remove the other nail. And then, you know, the guy starts to float. And I say, yeah, run, 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 run to River Jordan quickly. Run, go and enter. Baptize yourself, then run back. Then we can go. <laughs> he didn't do that. His response to this guy's faith in his sacrifice was, you will be with me surely in paradise this day. Um, and, and look, if, if the host and the Lord of heaven tells you you'll be in his home, you best believe it's true. So we have to ask those questions. Why did Paul have to say and respond that he was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? So at the end of the day, we have to dig deep. Um, why didn't Jesus himself even ever baptize with water? He never did. Only his disciples did, those who followed John the Baptist. He never baptized anybody. So if that was a prerequisite for salvation, 
Why didn't he spend the time doing that? At the end of the day, water baptism was a symbolism, a shadow of the true, real baptism by spirit, which is fire. And by the way, when it says water and spirit, water and spirit mean the same thing. The word and is the Greek word kai. Um, I won't go into the details, but there's something in the Greek where you have the TSKS rule. When you have water and spirit, you're saying water, which is a spirit, where it says um, our Lord Jesus in John chapter 1 um, you know, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is grace which is the truth, not the law. It is grace. Grace is the truth. And that's what Jesus brought for us, a dispensation of grace. And so um, the true baptism of the Spirit is this, First Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to just open there quickly. I know it by heart, but I want you to check it out. It says we've been all baptized by one Spirit into one body. But let me... Let me read it for you verbatim. Um, yes, there we go. Just as one, as a body, though one has many parts. I'm reading the NIV. But all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. Verse 13. For we were all baptized. How? By one spirit. So as to form one body whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. So when, this is how baptism works. You were baptized by one spirit into what? One body. That's what the King James says. So by the spirit of adoption, you who never were included in the family of God, the institution of God, by the spirit of adoption, you can call God what? Abba Father, which means you belong to the family. Glory to God. That is powerful stuff. So you were immersed, you were included into the family of God by the Spirit, not by water. The water is a representation of what took place in the Spirit. It's a physical, um, it's a physical preparation for a spiritual manifestation. What really happened in your spirit was that you were included in God's family. You now belong to the commonwealth of Israel. You are now a spiritual Jew. You belong. And it's by the spirit of adoption. That is true baptism. So the one who is saved, I'll give you more scriptures. Romans chapter 8, very quickly. Romans chapter 8, we'll read from verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So you will belong to the spirit if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That is the statement I, was, I wanted to show you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, then they do not belong to Christ. You cannot say you are born again and you don't have the spirit of God. You are waiting for some later day when the spirit of God will come upon you. You need to remember that what happened in the upper room was the very first time, the advent of the spirit. And so they had believed, but there was a promise to come. But their case was unique. It's not going to be that... After you believe in Jesus, you will now go to one upper room and wait for the Spirit. No, now that the Spirit has come, everyone who believes, the Spirit makes you officially a part of God's family. And he moves in how? With his gifts. He moves in with his fruits and does that sanctifying work in your heart because now you belong to God's family, right? Um, there's one more scripture that I want to call out, but I don't know if we have time to call it out. Um, it's... Oh, I lost the scripture. Uh, let me see. Uh, 
Uh, Galatians. It was on my in my mind right now. I don't know. Why I can't remember. But um, this is the point, right? I was going to talk about when is a person baptized. It is when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are baptized. They, are, they become a part of God's family. What does it mean baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit? Um, when you see that, when you go make disciples, what you're doing is you're, uh, it, it can be seen in two ways. You can baptize them into the doctrine of the Christ, right? And it, and when you talk about the salvation plan, it's the Father, Son, and Spirit that are involved in the salvation plan. Do you understand? Um, so it could be you're immersing them into that new dispensation because there's a baptism of Moses, but there's also a baptism of Christ. So it could be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And what that means is you're baptizing them into the doctrine, into the authority of the Father, Son, and the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. by including them into God's family as you preach the gospel. Um, so that's a very good way to look at that um, scripture. That's a good interpretation for that. <laughs> I hope that simplifies things. <laughs> Thank you very much, PK. I think that answers it like, quite well. I hope so. Um, anonymous um, that answers it quite well and for the sermon we have we do have a sermon must I be baptized to go to heaven it's from 20, there we go. Um, 2021 um, listen to it again you know take down the references if you still have more questions um, yeah. you can come around and ask more questions um, so I want to ask us to do something because there are a lot of anonymous questions here and <laughs> I might soon be getting into some heavier questions and I need the people that ask these questions to be here so um you can go share um wherever you shared our posters before now and your links and tell people that if they ask if they you know sent in questions they need to be here um Absolutely. so that these questions are not skipped over all right um so we'll take chiazam's question since she's an in-house person and she is here while we wait for those people to come in uh, and just let them know that they should stay. Because I, I, I can see that a few people are, you know, coming in and dropping off and coming in and dropping off. So they should just wait and we'll get to their questions. All right. Um, so Chiazam is asking, what's your take on um, asking God, you know, if you do this for me, I will do. <coughs> so what was what's, what's your take on, you know, transacting with God, basically? And then mm. she said something like in the case of Hannah and um, Jephthah. Okay. Very good question. Um, what's my take on uh, transactional dealings with God? <clears throat> God, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Um, so there are two ways to view it, right? And I'm going to then zoom into the people you mentioned. Hannah and um, I think the second person is Jephthah. Interesting guy. Um, so when it comes to that kind of relationship or interaction with God, there's a part of it that reveals, look, one, it could reveal desperation, but many times it also reveals that, look, nothing else matters more than this one thing. So I'm willing to do almost anything as long as I have this from you. I'm willing to, for example, in the case of Anna, I'm willing to dedicate him back if you give him to me. You give him to me, you give it to me, I give him to you. You know, that kind of relationship. It's, 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 I think it reveals that. It reveals a part of try, being sacrificial, 
for something bigger and better. However, in the case of Jephthah, I don't read I don't read this guy at all. And I was having a conversation with a friend recently about this guy. He's think about it. Maybe some of you don't know the story behind it, right? It's in the book of Judges, chapter eleven, right? Yeah. It's a very silly guy. You go you go to battle. You 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 say, Lord, if if I conquer these people, uh, I make a vow to you this day that any listen to this guy, anything that walks out of the house of the tent to receive me, I will sacrifice. I will sacrifice that thing on an altar. I will kill it for your glory. <laughs> and guess what happens? He goes back home. The victorious triumphal procession. He's going rejoicing. Guess who greets him from the tent? His wonderful, beautiful daughter. <laughs> and he says, God, why? Why did you do this to me? No, you're stupid, bro. You did it to yourself. I, I, with all due respect, I, you know when you say with all due respect, you're going to say something even worse. With all due respect, you're very stupid for doing that. First and foremost, why didn't your vow have restrictions? Any animal, you understand what I'm saying? Any animal that walks out of the tent, I will sacrifice. That makes sense. Because who are you expecting to receive you? Is it a rare? <laughs> Welcome, boss. His daughter came, welcomed him in, and he had no choice but to fulfill his vow. First of all, I commend him, if anything, the fact that he's a man of his words. Yeah, but he's also very silly. That <laughs> I know I'm being harsh, but it's the truth. And then so she begged, at least give me two months. Let me go with my friends. Let me mourn on the hills. And then after two months, you can do as you have promised the Lord. And she was very understanding. Maybe she already knew him to be a principled man like that. And they took their vows to God very seriously, which is, I think, something very honorable. Of course, God, in, in my own opinion, I believe God expects commitments from us. Um, he's not necessarily asking us to swear by any name and say, God, I swear, no. He doesn't allow us to do that. He doesn't encourage us to do that. But here's the thing. Um, when in the case of Jephthah, you could have been wiser. And even if he gave two months for her, think about it. He gave her two months to mourn. Why couldn't he give her 20, 20 years? Right, Have a full life. She died a virgin. But why couldn't he give her a full year, have a life full time. When he's now about to die, you now say, okay, my daughter, come. Remember that deal? Yeah, let's fulfill it. At least he gave her time. Like, though, he didn't say when he was expected to offer the sacrifice. So there are just a lot of loopholes and just reveals this guy is very unserious. But the point is this, right? At the end of the day, I think it's honorable to be willing to sacrifice something for the Lord. But this is the reality of the new covenant. We have better it says, if, you, if you, God gave his best, he gave Christ, how will you know with him, as Romans 8, right? Freely give us all things. And that's the, that's the reality now. He gave heaven's best. He gave Christ. He is Father. We don't ask for bread and he gives stone. How much more your heavenly Father? He gives you when you ask. If there's anything, if this is the confidence that we have, whatever we ask in his name, according to his will, he gives us. Jesus said, anything you ask my father through me, 
he will give to you. John John chapter, I think, 15 or so or 16. So this these are scriptures to tell you you have better through Christ. They didn't have access to Christ. They didn't have a mediator. You have a mediator. And through his name, you have access to the blessings of the Father. The Lord is Father, and he blesses you. He doesn't need you to swear by any name. He doesn't need you to make a vow, except maybe specific cases where there's a leading to do that, uh, which I think does happen. But I don't believe that that's what moves God's hand. What moves God's hand is the sacrifice of Christ, and that is more than sufficient. Amen, church? Amen. 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 That that makes yeah. a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. So to or to sin. Um so someone was saying her battery is about to die and she had a question. Um, could you yeah. come live and ask the question? I can't seem to find your name um on Slido. If you are still here, could you would you mind asking your question live? Oh, it's written as fresh. All right. All right. Um, give me a second. All right. I was actually, it was because of your question. I wanted to make sure everyone was, was on the call. Um, all right. So, fresh. Wait, I can't find mm-hmm. Give me a second. Okay. Um, so, fresh has two questions and... Um, since our battery is, is about to go down, we'll just put them together. Um, so the first one says, hello, PK. Um, someone Hi. said, I have to wait after my prayers in order to hear God speak. Um, but in the minutes of waiting, I doze off. How can I stay consistent? So I guess that is, you know how um, people say prayer is communication and you should not make it one way. You should speak for, to dialogue. Him, for him. Yeah, yeah. You should wait for him to speak back. And she says she dozes off. Um, while waiting. <laughs> um, so how does she, I guess, how does she stay awake to, mm. to do that? And our second question is, is kissing during courtship acceptable by the Bible? Ooh, now we're getting spicy. Mm. Okay. Are those, the, are those all the questions? Uh, yeah, those are both her questions. I mixed that up with someone else. But okay, yeah, okay. Question. The first one, you prayed and you're waiting for a response from the Lord, but you dozed off. Like, I, I honestly think that the first thing you should check, do you have a brother named Dozi or something? Just just check. That might that might be something to look into. Um, the second thing I'll say is when you pray to the Lord, and this is not just hearing from the Lord, this is even in prayer itself. As much as the posture is free, there's liberty in the Lord. <clears throat> Take a position that works for you. If you know you would lie down on the floor and you know sleep is in, your, is in the corner of your eye, please, my sister, stand up or walk around. Go outside, take fresh air, listen to the Lord, right? Or sit down if that helps, right? But when you communicate with the Lord, you might not always expect, sorry, Getting the call, might not always expect a after you pray a loud voice and everything. You can't put a time to the Lord speaking, right? But what you can do is that take a posture that helps you not sleep off, right? The Lord can direct you to write something down, 
or he could put a word in your heart or he could prompt you to call someone or whatever it is, but just take a posture that you know in this posture, unless you are, your case is just the case where standing, you know, you can sleep while standing, you can sleep while walking or sleep walking. Then now, I don't know, maybe take coffee or something, <laughs> but um, just take a good posture that you know will help you stay awake and sensitive as well. Okay. And your second question, um, is kissing allowed in courtship uh, or does the Bible allow for kissing in courtship? I think that's how you asked the question. So on this one, it's a bit of a gray area in the scriptures. Uh, the Bible doesn't directly speak about um, kissing except when it's a holy kiss and which is for all brethren, not for you know romantic couples. Um, and that was a salutation, a way of extending love Okay, sorry about that. When you talk about kissing and whatnot, and should we hold hands, should we hug? At the end of the day, the principle is what matters. The manifestation of how the principle is dealt with can vary from couple to couple. It's okay, yeah. You can vary from couple to couple, but the principle is the same. Jesus gave the standard. Thank you so much. The standard about fornication. And he said this, fornication or adultery. When he was talking about adultery at heart, he was talking to married men. But it's also fornication at heart when you're lost after a person. You've envisioned it in your heart. It has taken root. You've lost it after something that is not yours or someone that is not yours in the confines of marriage. That is what it is. And so um, if kissing takes you to that place where you find yourself lost in after this person, um, and it's not love, it's just lust, and it's you wanting to have this person before then, before when you are together in the confines of marriage, then it's a problem. And it's not just kissing. If it's hugging that does that, if it's holding your hands that does that, if it is I'm just anything that just talks about physical connection and contact, um, it's the principle that matters. For some people, they're able to hold hands. Nothing is a problem for a lot of people. Some people, they can't do full hug because, you know, you understand, the semantics are not, you get what I'm saying. Some people cannot do that, but some people can. They can manage it. And some people <coughs> can manage kissing, all right? It is absolutely going to be much more difficult to be disciplined and to keep your hands where they should be. It will be super difficult. But at the end of the day, it varies by couple. There's no direct restriction to what can be done, what should not be done, except that fornication at heart and fornication in body should not be done. It is clear. All right, so those boundaries, you then decide between yourselves what helps us not lust after each other um, in a way that we fornicate at heart or in body. And does that help? I really hope it does. Um, so, um, Presh, I hope that helps. Um, so in summary, um, for the second question, um, don't start what you know you don't want to finish. Yeah, don't yeah, just do exactly. that. Um, for the first, first question, I want to add to what PK said. Um, you might be, want to hear an audible voice, but it might not always be audible because if you are listening for audible voice every time, demons can speak things. So um, sometimes it's not audible. I don't know if PK, you could touch on maybe how we hear because if you are waiting 
for an audible voice, it might be what is taking you so long. Spirits, you know, talks to us in several different ways. Yeah. I think I already touched that, right? I said, depending on, I already literally spoke about that, that you you don't have to hear from the Lord as it's an audible voice, except that's how he wants to speak to you at that time. It could be that he prompts you, gives you a word in your spirit. He tells you to call someone for a prophetic word, or he gives you a vision. It could be anything, um, or he directs you to a scripture. However God speaks in that moment, um, I think your major challenge was not hearing from the Lord, but staying awake when waiting, right? Um, and many times, um, Lord speaks on the go. He, it, it's after your prayer time, you go. Like, you see, um, happened with Paul many times. It was not necessarily prayed, and the Lord gave him a vision to go to Macedonia. Um, or other times where um, the Lord directs the people to go, constrains Paul from going to a certain place. Um, but yeah, um, um, <coughs> excuse me. All right. Uh, okay. Yeah. The priority is just staying awake and staying focused while we pray. Yeah. All right. Um, so I guess we have live people's hands are up now. Um, so, Odochiko, um, you have the floor. I, your hand went up first, so you can ask your question. Okay. All right, thank you. Um, so my question is on sinful nature. And um, in regards to one of the topics you taught during asking my friend is um, about what happens to people who never had the gospel. Mm. And then we understand that every individual or every person is born with a sin nature. And so what does God do to, for instance, newborn babies, and or what does He do with their sinful nature? Because they didn't get to believe, and then, you know, they didn't get to do anything to get the sinful nature out of them, and that's that's just one about it. But then, recently, you know, during the uh, um, fasting season, I think I was reading a scripture in Romans, and Paul was talking about the fact that we should not give. We should not allow our sinful nature control us, uh, but we should yield more to the spirit. And then all of a sudden, I wanted to pray, or I was about to pray, and I was like, oh God, uh, please don't allow me yield to my sinful nature. And all of a sudden, I just thought, I said, wait, my sinful nature. I thought Jesus has already done something about it, you know, that I don't have the sinful nature anymore, you know, because, I, you know, if anyone be in Christ, you know, that second Corinthians 5, something passage and i became confused i i went out to check um, some translation and some of the translations they use flesh instead of sinful nature yeah. but then again you still read paul and the way he's talking about um sinful nature in um i think romans 7 the previous chapter it seems to be something he still has in him because he said the the sin nature i have in me is at war with the spirit and i'm wondering hasn't jesus done anything about it or what is the signature when does he leave us or and that's that's just my overall question what is the signature okay. when does he leave us and how does it happen for those who never you know confess jesus as their lord and savior thank yeah. you very good question i think your questions are very brilliant um, <clears throat> so the, here's how i answer that 
when you talk about the sinful nature or we talk about the flesh, um, I think those who use that phrase sinful nature and, and translators, especially in the, when you're teaching from that, you have to be very careful and very specific about what you're talking about. Because when you talk about sinful nature, there is the sinful nature, um, which, for example, Paul talks about in, in the way that we were dead in our trespasses and we used to walk according uh, to the <coughs> to the life of the prince of the air, right? The, the same spirit that works in the children of disobedience. So there is a sinful nature spiritually. And at salvation, that was changed. You are regenerated by the spirit. The spirit of God moved in. And you know the Ezekiel 36 prophecy talks about it, where the stony heart is taken away and the heart of flesh, a new spirit is put within you. That is regeneration. That is a miracle of chain desires. And so when that happens, the sinful nature um, that ties you to disobedience and rebellion is gone. It is dealt away with. But when you talk about the salvation plan of God, it's in three stages. It is tripartite, just like you are tripartite. It's going to cover your spirit, which is already saved. It's going to, you know, cover your soul, which is being saved. And it's going to cover your body, which will be saved. In the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says we will be changed and we will be like him. Corruption will take on incorruptible and we will reign with the Lord forever. First Corinthians 15, verse Thessalonians chapter 4. So at the end of the day, this is a promise to come. This is part of the inheritance of the saints. Second Corinthians 5 tells us about a temple, a habitation that we will take, you know, a new body, a spiritual body. Read First Corinthians 15, you will see the whole narrative about this there, the different kinds of bodies. So the reason why you are still in this body and you still feel these influences is because the body has not been saved yet. And so there are those influences, there are those tendencies of the flesh and also of the soul. So in the body, it, you're talking about sickness, you're talking about pain, you're talking about death, for example. This body can die, this body can be sick, this body can be weak, it can be weary. Your soul, which is still being saved and being transformed into the knowledge, you know, according to the knowledge of Christ, um, can still have those ugly thoughts, can still you know, be perverted by external influences. But the ideal situation is that the spirit and soul have a harmonious blend where the spirit is able to influence the soul the right way. You know, Jesus our Lord says this, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, if actual sense, when we say flesh, let's be honest, flesh is more than just this guy. Flesh is also this guy. Because at the end of the day, it's thoughts that influence actions, is it, is it not? So there is a work. That's why when you see someone who is consistently walking in victory, there has been a renewal of mind that has happened. You've renewed your mind. You've aligned your soul with your spirit. And then your body acts accordingly. So when you when he uses the language of, of sinful flesh or sinful nature, it's about the parts that are still being saved and will be saved. There will come a time where we will never have to wrestle with this, where sin will be extinct, where death will not exist and death will die. And that time is coming. But in that time, we are encouraged to do what? To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 2. So this is what I'm saying. At the end of the day, the spirit nature, the spirit that you have is that of Christ. 
and God is reconciling all things to himself in accordance to that spirit, that your soul will align, that your flesh and your body will align to the work that has been done on your spirit already. Do you understand? So we've been initially saved, we are gradually being saved, and there's a time where we will eventually be fully saved, full package, um, a mind that uh, is like Christ fully, a body that is also like Christ, a spiritual body, a body that we can take to heaven um, with us. So <clears throat> that's about that. For those who never hear the gospel, who never have the opportunity I've never come to the realization that they were in fact sinful, never had the opportunity to make a decision or didn't have the ability to make the decision to um, to be saved or to receive, a, to have a savior. Like I said in the teaching, if you go back to it, I explained that in this matters, the Bible really doesn't definitely call out what exactly will happen on a case-by-case basis. But we can apply that God's character is both just and merciful we cannot believe that while God upholds his justice, he also upholds his mercy to those who are incapable of making a decision in the first place. I hope that makes sense. I really hope that helps. Yes, yes sir. Thank you very, very okay. much. Your answer was well detailed and wonderful. Thank you very Yay. much. Yay. You owe me $5,000. Uh, <laughs> this economy. Um, all right. Um, that was a good question, Dutchko. Thank you for asking. Thank you, PK, for that answer. All right, so um, these questions are anonymous. Okay, one, so I'm going to lump like three uh, questions together. Um, one is from Praise, and the other two, I think they are together, but they are anonymous. So Praise says, why doesn't God specially or specifically preserve his laborers, pastors, people generally doing his work, to carry on his work? Why does he allow some of them go so young? Then the mm. anonymous says, I am dealing with grief, help. I know I have ultimately conquered death through Jesus, but I can't help but ask why. It is not fair. Mm. And then he continues to say, if you were to die as the head of the five, ah, Hey, hey, hey. Is the death no, justified? Um, so I think it's, it's they all tie together. I'm thinking yeah, yeah. two different people, but um, he's asking is death justified and God knows best, even though you left all of us behind. Why do bad things happen to good people? Hey, this third question shook me. Uh, <laughs> the, the millennial in me almost jumped out. I mean, the baby boomer in me almost said, Jesus name. But um, I think I really do believe this person is asking from a very dark place, um, a place of grief, a place yeah. of hurt. Um, perhaps this person knew someone who, in the faith, was instrumental in leading many people, but died prematurely, or as we would call prematurely, died at a young age. Um, it's very terrible. And it's still another question of why the good thing, why the bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Um, here's the thing, right? When you think about, and I know the circumstances may be different, but again, I would say the principle is the same. We live in a fallen world and the promise of life that we have while the Lord in his mercy does preserve, does give his angels charge of us, lest we dash our foot against a stone. He does preserve. 
He does. However, the principle is the same. We live in a fallen world. And this body will not live forever. The promise of salvation is not for this body. It's not just for this life. It's for the life to come. And so um, when you look at even those who faithfully serve the Lord, if anything, it's almost as if the standard and the norm was that a lot of these people, especially when you look in the New Covenant, these people had their lives cut short through persecution, right? For example, like even when you think about some of the prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Isaiah, these guys were brutally murdered. When you talk about the early apostles, these people, we don't hear accounts of them growing old, being grandparents, except with the exception of John the Beloved, as we'll call him. Every other, every other apostle was killed, persecuted, either stoned or speared or, um, or beheaded or hung upside down on a cross. So what you see is the actual, should I say, sequence in the New Testament of these people who faithfully served the Lord actually die. When you read Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, you see the examples towards the end of people who were willing to lose their life in this world to obtain a better resurrection in the next world. And so that is where faith is at its peak and hope is alive. Um, but to say that God is unfair um, in not preserving these people who gave their lives for him, it will be wrong to say that. Also, the circumstances, like I said, might be different. It might not be a case of persecution. It might be a case of sickness. And when Paul spoke about a man called Epaphroditus, who was trying to merge and bridge the gap that the Philippians had created by not meeting his needs, Epaphroditus went out of his way, and he did so much labor that he was sick almost unto death. And the language which he said is, look, God had mercy on us that he preserved him somehow. Do you understand? But if this guy, if care was not taken, this guy through his labor would have died and then they would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So to be honest with you, I don't know the details and semantics about why people pass on to young. I can give some examples of people that I know um, and I can give examples of other cases, right? But it's, it's very dynamic. There are people that I know who are ministers of God and the reason why they died, when they did the diagnosis, they checked why um, this person died. The, one of them died of dehydration. He wasn't drinking enough water, and so his organs were failing. His kidney, his liver, they had told him before, but he didn't do anything about it. He passed away. Another one of them used to drink a lot, um, apparently. He used to drink. It affected his um, liver and his kidney, and he passed away. Another um, preacher of God had high blood pressure and cholesterol levels and he wasn't exercising, he wasn't eating right. And while miracles are a suspension of natural order and law, they are not the order of day. Miracles are not to sustain us. It is a healthy diet, it is exercise, do you understand? And, and taking the right supplements that helps us have a healthy human body here on earth at this time. And if you don't obey those principles, it's not magic. You can't pray yourself to be healthy. It, there's work to be done, you know. And so that's, that, that's what I would say about this. There's some things that are just um, things that we are responsible for. As much as God is sovereign, we are absolutely also responsible. It's that 
dynamic parallel line between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And so we must be responsible. We must treat God's temple right. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's, I know it might not also just be in this circumstance. I know there's circumstances of people who somehow develop terminal diseases and people pray and fast and almost seems like nothing happens. Um, listen to teaching that Chika did, the healing still happens today. You probably get an idea of, of what the answer is, but it's, it's a sad thing to lose someone, especially someone who wasn't the faith. It's, I'm telling you, it's something that can, and, and please, if you're listening to me, if you're here on this call, talk to someone about it, please. It's, it's, it's a very easy thought that can fester and linger and become something else to your faith. And, and I want you to talk about it. Grieve. Remember the clause in First Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. I know it's sad. I know we don't have all the answers. And we keep asking why. We never might get all the answers now. But one thing is sure, there's a better resurrection. And anyone who is in Christ truly belongs to God. We will see them again. They are asleep. They are not dead. Death will die. We will reign with them for all eternity when Trump is sounded. And they will rise first and we meet them in the air to celebrate with our Lord forever and ever. It's a reality. And, and it's in this moment that you differentiate between a fairy tale and what the scriptures say. Is the scripture really true? Is this really the outcome of life, as, as the Bible has said, that we will reign for all eternity? And you have to believe it in this moment. You need to be strong and you need to get strength as well from people around you. Talk to someone, all right, is what I would say. <sighs> yeah. Um, Chika, you're muted if you're talking, I think. You're muted. Is it just me that can't Hi, Chika, your mic is mute. Yes, PK, it's only you. Oh, so okay. sorry. So sorry. Um, so sorry. Um, I was saying that that's very profound. And the way you phrased this question, you said you're dealing with grief and you put help. Um, so if you need help, please reach out. <coughs> To someone and if you're asking yes, for that here maybe send pk a dm or if you're in a group group send your group group leads yeah, a DM, exactly um so that someone could follow up with you and see how you are doing all right um so we'll take yeah. a live question dami your hands are mm. up hello hi people um okay so my question was um it came by that baptism question. So, um, Acts two verse thirty-eight is that is that a good um verse to tell someone about um how like once you believe you get the Holy Spirit. Um, do you have other verses that you could recommend to let someone know that once you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit? So yeah, and I have another question, but they don't correlate. Should I wait? Oh, uh, you can ask. It's fine. Okay, um, the other question is, um, Jesus' death, like, I mean, in Hebrews, it says that there's no, there's no sacrifice without shedding of blood, and I was just wondering if, like, did Jesus have to die such a gruesome death, or could he have died through another means? Yeah, and, like, shedding of blood, is shedding of blood not the same? Like, why did Jesus' death have to be so... I mean, okay, I know that there were prophecies, but I just want to understand that better. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Interesting question. 
On the first one, yes, that's a very powerful scripture to talk about the baptism of the Spirit, that if you believe in this message, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, um, every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Exactly, yeah. It's just, um, okay, so my, my. Yeah, let me just okay. let me just land on this. My my concerns when it comes to the book of Acts. I mean, the truth is this: the church was starting, right? The church was starting; it was expanding, it was growing, and this is an eyewitness account. This is not revelation of Christ. We see these people preach. We see these people do the work, actually, but it's not revelation. It's in the same <clears throat> in a similar category with the gospel accounts, which are eyewitness accounts. Even though they wrote it post the resurrection of Jesus, they are, they are designed as eyewitness accounts. So you cannot take doctrine from them. I'll give you a case in point. At this point, they didn't believe that Gentiles should be saved. It was strange to them up until even chapter 10, where Peter was wrestling the same concept until he met a man like Cornelius. Philip already knew when he met the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He already knew that in, what was that, chapter 8, I think? He already knew. He had witnessed this guy, baptized him, got him saved, and Philip traveled, you know, Philip Airways. Um, but Peter was wrestling with this thing. He couldn't believe it. He had to even explain in chapter 11 to the Jewish people that, look, guys, look, I didn't believe it as well. I couldn't believe my eyes. But when I saw this guy and his family speaking tongues and prophesying, ah, I said, God truly is, is not a respecter of persons. So, ah, God is good. And so they started to warm up to the idea that truly this was God's plan from the beginning when he promised Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed. So these guys were discovering many things on the go. They even had to come to a council in Acts 15 where Paul had to be there and James was presiding and they had to do it in the Jerusalem council and said, look, guys, salvation is by faith, um, by grace through faith alone. It's not about circumcision. It's not about any of the ceremonial practices. It's done away with. And then James now said, okay, you know what? Fine, we agree. But let's just add this, that, you know, there should not be um, animals strangled um, or um, food, eating food offered to idols and things like that. Um, but what I'm saying is this. There was a progression still of revelation in the book of Acts. But in the epistles, there's no longer a pro progression. There is a, there's just a revelation of Christ in the epistles. And that's why we are only allowed um, to draw doctrine from those. So that's why when I give you the examples of the scriptures, you can use like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Romans 8, uh, 10. Um, you see it also in Galatians chapter 5. Um, those scriptures are epistles where revelation is found. And so... I think those are very helpful when it comes to drawing doctrine on this particular issue. But you wanted to ask something additional. All right. Okay, all right, thank you, sir. Um, what I wanted to ask was like literally about the Acts 2 verse 38. Um, someone okay. <laughs> was on Instagram. Um, someone was just like, what about people that are saved, right? But like, I don't know. Because of how they say repent and be baptized, like someone mm -hmm. just asking about people that are like, I mean, they are saved, but they are sinning. Like, do they still have the Holy Spirit? And doesn't this only relate? Like, I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit is something that comes and goes. And they are saved and they are sinning. 
Yeah. You say they are saved, that they are still. They, they are saved, but like they are still, like they believe in Jesus, but they are basically complacent and still sinning. Hmm. <coughs> okay, so I mean, there's, there are different ways to look at that. Two ways to look at things. There is a place where someone claims and pro- and proclaims that they are saved. And they think they are saved, but they are not really saved. And so they don't bear fruits. The Bible says we will know them by their fruits. So you're not bearing fruits. There's no evidence that something has changed within you. You can question if you're really saved in the first place or not. But there's also a place where someone truly, genuinely is saved, but had lived their entire life in darkness. Their body was used to a certain thing. Their mind was used to doing things certain ways. But they are growing. They are growing from infancy to maturity. What categorizes an infant is that an infant will make mistakes. An infant will do things out of character. An infant will do things that an adult will not even think to do. And they will make mistakes. But when they grow to maturity, guess what? There's more consistency in righteousness. So if you're saying that the believer who just believes in Christ stops sinning forever, is now perfect, then what, is, what are we looking forward to? What are we looking forward to in the, in the coming of our Lord? Do you understand? Now, it's different. Maturity looks like consistency. But for someone who came to faith recently and is trying to grow, you cannot expect maturity from such a person in such a short time. All right, so those are the two ways to look at this, yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. I just don't want there to be ambiguity when, like, you... Like, using that verse, like, I don't know. I don't want it to be that someone now, like, be questioning the person... And use that to now say, oh, okay, they probably don't have the Holy Spirit, and it's only like righteous people, like no, like righteous by their works people. I don't know the the person that gave the comment. I was like, his doctrine was so weird, but like yeah. I don't know. I was just. <laughs> well, you know the truth. What happens? What happens to a believer that makes a mistake in terms of the residency of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit abandon? A believer and leave the person yeah. and wait till yeah. they put themselves together or is the work of the holy spirit to put you together or is the work of the holy yeah. spirit to be present to have to be a present help in time of need is the work of the holy spirit to not forsake you leave or forsake you especially when you need him the most to sanctify you. so it's almost like you're getting backwards in in the faith it's not and maybe it's the african parent mentality where we give trip a person for making a mistake and we abandon them to teach them a lesson. Not with God. His absence does not teach any lesson. It's his presence that teaches us. It is the working of his spirit in us that does the teaching. When the word of God is activated by the spirit in our hearts, sanctification happens. And so that's, that's that. And you know this. So this is something you can easily share. And from this scripture, it's true. If you receive salvation, you receive this, the gift of the Holy Spirit just as they received in the upper room. That's what he was trying to explain to them. All right? I think you yes, had another question as well linked to this. Yeah, it was about... Um, um, sorry, Piki. Um, Dami, I'm so sorry for cutting you. But um, we have like a few um, other questions to touch. And like there is little... There's little time to touch them. So I want to just quickly touch some other questions. Um, so, Dami, you can text in your question. You have access. 
you can. All right. All right. Um, so we are going to, we have, we have spent almost all the time. We have like 20 something minutes to go. And, um, okay. So I can see two live questions. Uh, okay. So let's just take a live question and then we would take, so Derek is the last person that is going to go. No other live questions would be coming up. Um, so Ayo, you have the floor. You can ask now. All right, uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you, PK, for this session. So my question is as regards, I believe I'm audible, um, the teaching or apostles who never hear the gospel. And I know I already asked this in the group group, but Ezekiel's question kind of reminded me. So I'm um, looking at the scripture, Matthew 24, 14, that says, um, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the to all nations, and then the end will come. Where does this factor in that conversation? And does it not mean that um, for the end comes, the gospel would indeed have been preached across all nations? Hmm. <coughs> Very good. Very good question. Um, so when reading this particular book of the bible matthew chapter 24 um there is a dual narrative that is happening here it's also in the book of luke 20 i can't remember the exact chapter but it's also in the book of luke um but jesus is prophesying to these people he's literally um, helping them anticipate what is going to happen there will be a destruction it's there's a whole lot of prophecy about the destruction that will happen in the temple. AD 70, the Jerusalem temple will be destroyed. And he gives them the signs, the things that they will see. There will be an abomination um, in the temple and this and this and that. But he also talks to them about the signs of the uh, end times. And so, for example, um, so this has been really debated um, by many people. When you go to, for example, let me see verse, let me check, 24. From verse 15, right? <clears throat> Even before verse 15, when you start to read it, um, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes dissolution, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Um, many people have said that, oh, this is... This abomination that caused the solution is the Antichrist and yada, 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 yada. No, this, he was saying, let the reader understand, meaning, look, this is something you will be able to witness in, in time to come. The holy place was the Jerusalem temple, right? And there'll be an abomination. That's where these guys had the, the whole, I don't want to go to the historical narratives of this, but the temple was plundered, it was destroyed, the people were scattered. That's where he starts to talk about and let, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's the chaos that's happening. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful is it to be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers? People have said that because when pregnant women have their babies, their babies will disappear and vanish in their tummy and they will stay behind. You know how they did it? I've heard that in the Left Behind series, how pregnant women will lose their babies because their babies will be raptured, but they will remain. But that could not be what he's talking about, right? It's following from that narrative of the destruction of the temple. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or Shabbat 
for then there will be great distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. And then he goes on to continue, talks about that. Then from here, from verse 22, let me see. Uh, give me a second. Uh-huh. If those days have, have not been cut short, no one will survive. But for the sake of the elect, this verse 22, those days will be shortened, right? <clears throat> and the elect mean for the sake of the God's Israel. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or here he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders. Um, and if possible, deceive even the elect. Um, then he goes on to talk about it. So from here, when you now start to see um, immediately after the distress of of those days, the sun will be. Let me use KJV. Give me a second. Uh, where is it? After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. The sun of the sun of the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the sermon coming from the clouds of heaven, glory. They will send his angels and then all of that. So <clears throat> there's the place from verse 29. It starts to talk about, um, it starts to talk about, um, uh, what am I saying? The end times. If you read, just take your time to read this, right? When you read verse one, um, it says, and the disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, do you not see all these things? I show the ourselves you know, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he now starts to explain what will happen to the Jewish temple and how it will be destroyed. But there's also a switch. After he does that, he also then tells them, look, even beyond this, um, there will be a time after the tribulation of these days where the sun will be darkened, it will not give its light, the moon will also not give its light, the stars will fall the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the clouds, the trumpet will sound and all of that. So um, it's, you need to be careful to understand the message in, in this story. Um, at the end of the day, if you want to look to what happened in the end times, again, doctrine is drawn from um, the New Testament. And just as an announcement, there's a book of the Bible, and, and I will leave you to guess, that we're going to study in the month of September that would give us the full picture of what this will look like, all right? But here we can take it because our Lord Jesus is explaining this, but remember, doctrine is revealed truly in the epistles. And thankfully, we have numerous scriptures that talk about what will happen in those last days, even in the epistles, okay? I hope that helps. All right, yeah, thank you. All right. All right, all right, all right, all right. Um, thank you, PK. Um, so okay, uh, I saw Derek's hand up, but it's now down. Chazam, I said Derek was last last person, but okay, yeah. his hand back up. <laughs> Chazam, I'm sorry, but um, Derek's hand. I was actually going to ask. I was actually going to get one of Chazam's questions from the Slido link. So I guess I'll give Chazam. Then we'll do Derek. Um, right. um Chazam, pick one question from your your slider and, and let's hear it. Um so Derek, you still go last. You still go last. Okay, thank you, Chica. 
Um, so my question is, is the word in Psalm 33, verse 6, Jesus, what is the difference between Jesus and God the Father in 1 Corinthians 5, 8? Uh, so it's just uh, surrounding the topic of how uh, through Christ or through the word all things were made and without him nothing was made. That's John 1, 3. Uh, and then a cross-reference I saw was Psalm 33, verse 6. So I'm just wondering, is the word there, Jesus, in Psalm 33, verse 6? And then, then there's another reference, 1 Corinthians 5, 8, that talks about it, too, about how uh, for God, through, for God, for everything was made for God, and through Christ everything was made. So I'm just trying to understand uh, God's place in creation. I'm not sure that reference is correct, though. I don't think it's First Corinthians five eight. Hold on, let me confirm. But you can start with yeah. the Psalm uh, for something three verse six. Right, absolutely, I'm, I'm that is true. Something. So there's there's also a question. Um, so what Shazam is asking sort of ties to the Trinity, and there's a question here. So I, I guess um you might you can just t touch okay. into it a bit. Um, the person asks, please, can you explain the roles of the Trinity? Um, many people have different versions, but. They would like to know um, what you think is the role of the Trinity. And we're supposed to finish the Q&A. What time? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so PK is um, 1 Corinthians 8-6. Sorry, not 5-8. 8-6. Okay. For um, Psalm 33, verse 6, absolutely, by the word of the Lord. Um, of course, the interpretation of word, even from um, the Greek, uh, the Greek, rendition in john chapter one from in which it was written which is logos um goes beyond just words like it's not just jesus was letters and then letters became words and then jesus graduated to become sentences that's not it word was the origination of intent word was the purpose and plan um coming to life in and it, it, how do I? It, it's the intent, the purposes, the <laughs> the plans and purposes of God. Basically, is what logos is, and so um, Jesus being described as the Word is the intent of God in creation, and so He becomes the architect, and that's why Colossians also tells us, um, through Him all things are made. You know. Uh, uh, all things are made by him and for him, right? John 1 tells us the same thing. Without him was not anything made that was made. So it's very accurate. So by the word of the Lord, all things exist. That reference prophetically aligns and it's correct. For First Corinthians 8 verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are through whom it is absolutely these are accurate references and just says look of whom are all things he's the source of all things but it was through our lord jesus christ that all these things came to be right and he created them by um by the will of the father and you see our lord jesus say that even while on earth the works i do i do um, according to the will of the father and so um, that's kind of how we see that blend in a relationship I would I would link this now into what Chica asked last. I will not be able to go into this in detail because it's going to be lengthy. But when you talk about roles, like we've established, 
The Lord is the source of all things. Oh, sorry, I'm getting a lot of calls. Um, the Lord is the source. I need to put this on DND. Give me one second. Uh, how did they do it? DND. Okay. There we go. <coughs> all right. So, yeah. Um, what was I saying? The Father is the source of all things. The Lord Jesus is the one doing all things are made. Beyond that, we see the intent of God, the logos of God, become human flesh. The intent that all men be reconciled to the Father. The intent that all men be saved. And we see that um, our Lord Jesus becomes flesh and dwells amongst men and takes on the, the punishment that they deserve and took our place so that we do that. So in terms of role, he executed the salvific will of the Lord on the earth. And post that sacrifice and resurrection, um, for God to be, not just be with his people, but be in them so that they know him and so that he does the work in them. He cannot go in them into them as a body, as human flesh. He has to go through them um, by his spirit. And so that's where we see the role of the Holy Spirit even still executing the salvific work of God now within us, um, the seal of our salvation to present us on the day when the Lord will return blameless and holy before him. And so we see that that is the progression that follows. We see how these roles are beautifully involved and how that none is complete without the other. We see this beautiful relationship and union and, and intra-inter-connective intra, love amongst members of the Godhead. Um, and we see how beautiful it is. At the end of the day, uh, the glory of the Spirit is the glory of Christ, and the glory of Christ is the glory of the Father, and they share in that glory. And the glory is that man be reconciled back to God. Think about that. Like What gives God glory is our reconciliation to him, our fellowship with him. And that blows my mind every time. But that's, that's a summary of how the roles are played. It's a different conversation as to who do we pray to and all of that, but that's another question. Another time. Um, thank you, PK. Uh, Chazam, was your question answered? Did you have any other? Um, we loved completely, but I think I'll just hold on for now. No, ask. What didn't you understand? Um, so in the in the Psalm 33 verse 6, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so does that mean that was Christ that it was referring to? The Psalm 33 verse 6. Yes. I would believe so. Now, when you look at the, the Psalm, you... I can't say that the writer knew this revelation exactly as it is. In fact, in all the gospel accounts, we see John prove to us that he does have revelation now by introducing the book that way. In the beginning was the word. He's just revealing Christ. And so while the psalmist might have been in the dark, what he does know is, look, by the intent of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, all things came to be. And... Um, his own narrative can also be linking back to the beginning, where in the beginning God said, let there be light. 
Christ, let it be this. But now we see through Revelation that it was not just mere words. It was not letters. It was not English that formed this thing. It was the Logos of God that brought these things to be. And so um, as much as the Hebraic writings revealed that it was the word of the Lord, we now see it truly in, in the full-blown revelation that this was our Christ through whom all things were made. <clears throat> Without him, nothing was made that was made. So yeah, with New Testament eyes, remember there's the principle of hermeneutics, which is the new law of new life. By using that principle, you can read back into the scripture with new light and see that the Christ is the one who created all things. Okay, so just to ensure that I understand what you're saying. So are you saying that like let's say in the old testament they were they saw like creation come to be by God speaking, right? Um, or by words, like God said something and there was light, right? Sorry for the lightning if you heard it. Eh? What was that? Oh, that was scary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, but in the New Testament now, we can say that we know that that word was not just words that were spoken, like, let there be light, but was is mm -hmm. Christ. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. In fact, to even double down on that, from that same narrative in Genesis, which, by the way, is one of the most symbolic books, just as much as Revelations is symbolic, maybe not nearly as Revelation, but um, Genesis is very symbolic. You see that even from that experience of Let It Be Light, Paul references it and says, um, just as that happened, the, the light of the gospel, you know, can also be sh shown in the hearts of people. So um, at the end of the day, we look to... We look still to the epistles for revelation, right? At the end of the day, it's the lens through which we see the old. It's not a new concept. It's just a revelation of what was hidden. And that's how the structure mm -hmm. of the Bible is. So it's very important that when we read those narratives, we, we see them at face value, but we need to also see what revelation about this says as, as well. So when I'm reading this, if I'm as I'm reading Psalm 33 verse 6, I'm not just looking at the righteousness and justice of God in exclusion from his Christ. At the end of the day, the Lord is going to judge the world by his Christ. You know, he created the world by his Christ. It's, it's now how we see the scriptures. We have new sights. And so I think it should influence how we read the scriptures. I'm not saying Jesus is every in every single verse. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but... Um, where you discern that truly this can only be possible by the Lord, like Zach, for example, creation has revealed, then you know, okay, this writer may not have known him, but this is what he meant. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Is it is it clear now? Yeah, I'm not going to say now five fifty. No, you're not saying fifty. You think? Yeah, I'm not really saying go now five. I've never said Derek, your mic is on mute. Yeah, well, PK is clear. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, too. <coughs> right. It was only like Derek um, wanted to fight. Derek, <laughs> I hope nobody's owing you money. It sounds like, sound like they're owing you money. Sorry. Um, so, Derek, are you free to ask your question now? Or do we um, take it to someone else and round up? Can you hear me? Oh yeah, we can hear you, Derek. 
Okay, good evening, everyone. Good evening, PK. Thank you for doing this. Okay, so my question. Um, what I want to ask, how do we, if we want to give corrections to Christians that adopt new age Christianity ideology or use terminologies, like let's say a Christian says, I manifested this or, you know, I am not feeling the energy mm. of the universe right now, you know, that kind of thing. Because I can see, I can understand and see why it would be easy for certain Christians to fall into that rabbit hole, being that you can draw some faint similarities to, you know, their terminologies, their ideologies and certain theologies that some of us adopt now. So if you, now as a person, if you know somebody personally that you see falling into that line of thinking, how would you correct that person? Okay, I will burn their books. I will burn them all. <laughs> Give me those books you are reading. Give me those podcasts you are listening to. Burn them all. Give me those Christian preachers. I put that in quotation that you're listening to, that are introducing new age theology to you. And I need to stop you from listening to those. Because sadly, new age spirituality has crept into the church. And not all spirituality is true spirituality. But not our relationship with God is not such that we try to manifest things into the atmosphere or speak things into motion. We do have authority in Christ to take charge, to dominate the world, and advance the kingdom of the Lord. And by dom dominate, I mean in terms of advancing God's kingdom, but not in terms of we feel the energy of our chakra and our inner self, and we need to be at peace with our inner self and all that nonsense. No, there's nothing like that. It, it's new age practice. It is not of God. Um, it is shunned, even in scripture. But at the end of the day, we need to take those influences from this person, understand that true spirituality is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, and the God who, who sent him. That is true spirituality. All right, that's, that's what I would say basically about that. Strip away the influences and introduce the right influences. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Kiki. It is nine on the dots, and Pastor Chiston will probably eat me, but I have one last question to take, and then... Um, we would be rounding up. So Favor is asking on Slido, um, hello, PK, I would love an explanation as to whether covering um, covering your head in church as a lady has scriptural backings. Thank you. Hmm. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, the question now could be, would be more of the instances where head coverings were mentioned in scriptures where they rightly interpreted. Right. And I think I think there are several teachings that we have on this in the podcast. They're just thrown around in certain places, maybe even in hermeneutics. When you talk about the cultural relevance of scripture, um, which could be a barrier, the cultural background, which can be a barrier to right interpretation, um, it's it's really something to consider when interpreting scripture. So for example, when you talk about holy kiss, holy kiss is um, by large and by far it's it's a cultural um, it's, a, it's a cultural concept. Holy kiss is how I would greet some people um, in some Western European cultures. 
right? And how they will greet me because of how they greet. They greet in some Arabian cultures, same thing, right? With some cultures that are influenced in the Middle East by <clears throat> some of these traditions, that's how they greet. You give a kiss on the cheek, right? Um, so yeah, that's a cultural thing. So when you read it, you, you might even want to ask, why are we not doing that in the church? Why are we disobeying scriptures? I'm literally going to teach about this next year. It's a series we're going to call Emphasis. But, you know, imagine that. Why are we not kissing in church? It should be something we do often. But when you realize that we hug each other in church, we give handshakes, and we exchange pleasantries, you are giving a holy kiss, all right? Um, so likewise, when you talk about women covering their heads, when you unpack it, you realize that he's not just talking about any woman. He's talking about jene in, in the Greek, which is wives. It's wives he's talking about, people who are married to their husbands, in a bid not to usurp authority and in a bid to reflect that they're, they're married to some person, the woman. The concept is that the hair is the glory of a woman. And so the only person allowed to see that glory um, in a sense, like her nakedness and to see the glory of her hair as well is her husband. And so no other man in public should be able to see that, even especially in a gathering of worship. So they have to cover their heads as a symbol of marriage to husband. However, that is not the culture today. The implication of the ring and the wedding band today is a circle which has no beginning and has no end. And that symbolizes what marriage is. And I love that concept. And that has been more adopted in our culture as to what represents who is married and who is not. So I think a more bigger conversation should be ensuring that everyone wears a wedding ring on that when they are worshiping in a service, for example. Do you understand? Um, just like you would enforce or encourage the covering of a woman's hair in a worship service like this. So, yeah, so that, that there is a biblical backing that talks about it, but within the context of the culture with the Corinthians at the time. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 11. So, yeah. David, so I hope that question was answered, you know, well enough for you, Favor. Um, she's still on the call. Said somehow. Um, is there any other thing you want to add while we still have to keep on? Or are you fine? I'm going to do my research. I'll come back. <laughs> All right, that's 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 great. That's the spirit. Um, I wanted to suggest that um as when we start with right church, um people that are in relationship should we should start culture, they should wear beads. Let's know who is single. So we should wear what beads. So that the singles can see road. Uh, All right. All right. Seems like I've been thinking of it since. I can't say how of long course, that's been on my mind. Let's move. Let's move on. All right. You need to be All right. We've, come, we've got to the end of Q&A today. And I learned a lot personally. And I'm sure you guys also learned a whole lot. Um, so thank you so much, PK, for you know taking time to answer these questions for us. As Pastor Shun say, we don't we don't miss Q&A at all. Um, and it will continue 
um, going on. Um, so one last thing before we pray. I saw a question, something about um, is once saved, always saved. I wanted to mention that we have, there are at least two sermons this year that cover that. Yeah. Um, the first one is at the beginning of the year, we did um, ISIS, initially ISIS. saved, infinitely saved. And then um, last month, we did what happened to those who never heard gospel. So those two sermons pretty much cover um, all of that. Yeah. Um, even we have played many more, actually, but those two specifically yeah. cover that. Um, you could listen to those sermons. If you still have questions, we are here for you. All right. Um, so let's pray. Father, we... I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.